Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, the song that we have just sung, these words that have been on our lips as we have lifted our praises to You, have confessed that You are our all in all. Because, Father, You are the One who made us in the first place, sustains us by the power of Your hand, has ransomed us from the clutches of death itself, the just wages of sin. Not only that, Lord, but Your indwelling Spirit sanctifies continues to perfect us to the standard, the measure, the fullness of Jesus Christ and His maturity, the perfect man and God. Lord, we are so dependent on You for all of these things, and now as we bow our hearts before You, we recognize that our hope is in You. Hope that our past might be washed away in the blood of Christ our Savior. Hope that our present may be redeemed for the purposes that you've intended. Hope for our future that it might be eternally secure and reconciled with God our Father. All our hope is in you. I pray as we discover more aspects of our hope, the glorious undergirding of propositional truth, the foundation of our faith laid out in Scripture, that it would not appear to us as dry or stale, but our very life Help us, Lord Jesus, in the hearing, even as I cry out for your Spirit's help in the delivery of this word, that we might glorify you, both in the delivery of truth and in the understanding, for the full equipping of your saints for the work of the ministry. Thank you, Father, for the great privilege that Jesus Christ's own blood has bought for us to gather in one accord this morning. And I pray these moments together would produce fruit that would advance your kingdom even as we pray. Your kingdom come and will be done in our hearts, lives, in this earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. What a joy and privilege to gather as the assembly of the beloved this morning around the Lord's holy word. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, verses 6 through 17 will be our text this morning. As you're turning there, I'll announce the title of the message, and in a moment I'll ask you if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning's title, today's sermon is All in One. It's a reference to the sufficiency and the multi-offices of Christ. That is, all of the needs that we have as a believer for the washing away of our sin and all of the offices that must be fulfilled in order for redemptive history to reach its full fulfillment and climax are in the one, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So stand with me, if you would, with your Bible open to Matthew 21, and let's read together. Follow me as I read these words in verses 6 through 17. The word says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Hosanna in the highest. Verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold, who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This morning in the record of the gospel events leading up to Calvary, we turn over another leaf and chapter to find Christ interacting in various ways with the temple and its worship at the time, with blind and lame who are healed on the premises. There are wonderful things that are being done all around the people and in their eyes and ears as the Messiah enters on prior to those moments on the foal and colt of a donkey, inspiring, compelling the crowds who spread their cloaks before Him and grab their Hosanna branches to wave in the air, crying all the while, Hosanna to the Son of David. Their cries are joined with children, babies and nursing infants, as it were, in the temple premises themselves, singing the same Hosanna to the Son of David. The Pharisees are disillusioned, and on the face of it, all this might seem like quite the chaotic record. Events are coalescing at this time in rapid fashion, and there is quite a stir in Jerusalem, even as it says in verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Let me state to you this morning with unequivocal certainty, and then I will endeavor to prove it by the scriptures, that this record is not a mere journal of chaotic, chaotic cause and effects, not mere contingencies of unimportant events or things that follow necessarily one to another as the byproduct of impersonal forces, but instead what we are seeing is the unfolding of messianic truth and prophecy in every moment, every jot and every iota, every, every recorded event, every utterance of our Messiah, and every interaction on the road ultimately to Calvary. Every single one is significant. We won't touch them all this morning. There are many I'm convinced that I don't as yet understand, but I hope you with me look forward with bated breath and hearts of flame with desire to discover the intricacies of the great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope this morning to whet your appetite for more discovery as we look at aspects of this passage in light especially of Old Covenant prophecy. This morning as our text comes to us and its background in view, 
I think we will clearly see that it drowns out the hecklers of popular culture and secular academia and scholarship who have, listen closely, I'll explain this phrase, they have tried to and have effectively so in the minds of the worldly reduced the Bible to the following, incidental anthology of cultic practices, an incidental anthology of cultic practices couched in a history distorted by primitive, mythical, and ethnic bias. That sounds on the face of it, I'm sure, kind of heady language, esoteric perhaps, so let me explain a little. When the world looks at the Bible, when higher education so-called analyzes the very text and others such as we consider today, they see this in light of any other work of antiquity. What they can learn from it, that is to say, is nothing more than other cultic practices of the day. Secular scholarship, skepticism, critical literary thought, looks at the covenant of Abraham and compares it to his Hittite neighbors. They look at the story of Noah and they see where does it parallel the epic of Gilgamesh. Where perhaps could the Babylonians get it right and the Bible get it wrong. Where perhaps does the Bible have accidentally some details right and perhaps others embellish with myth. But in the end, this approach to the scriptures treats it as nothing more than contemporary literature. It's just an incidental anthology. That is, like a library that collects, without discrimination, a bunch of works on interesting things to people at the time that may be relevant to us today, maybe not, probably not, but it's interesting history nonetheless, but certainly not history infallible or inerrant, but a history viewed through the distorted lens of the people of their time, who were primitive, Bronze Age nomads, who made up interesting theories to help them cope with life just as we do today, and so here before us is their psychological crutch of the ancients for us to view. When you interact with society today, some of what I just shared to you will likely be the experience of nearly all who are outside, certainly all who are outside the faith and even some who confess Christ within the church. The primacy, the sufficiency, the clarity, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Word of God are all questioned today with more pride, with more hubris, with more zeal than at any other time in the history of the West in, modern, in the modern era. Let me submit to you that this is a dangerous path indeed and can and will only end in one of two things. Repentance of our waywardness, our apostasy, and our God-hatred. Or secondly, judgment that we deserve for denying that God is true and real and here and present and he has spoken. Let us consider the contextual scope of the, just these 12 verses this morning in light of what else is written in the Holy Word of God. And let us see in the end, who is the fool? Is the fool the modern higher critic? One like Bart Ehrman, who comes to mind because I listened to him in a debate this week, more on that later perhaps. Is he the fool or is he the wise one? And the Bible claims, Bible's own intrinsic claims to be the authoritative truth. Are those the foolish words and phrases that we have before us today? So let the contest begin. And never mind the numbers. Let me recall your attention to a time in ancient history indeed 
where 450 prophets of Baal representing the majority of culture were challenged to a contest by one lone man of God, Elijah. And there on Mount Carmel, the terms of this exchange were laid out very clearly. The God who answers in fire, let us worship Him. And a day of cavorting around and dancing for lightning to strike and cutting and crying out to gods was met with nothing, yea, nothing. Yet one simple prayer from a humble prophet who dedicated his life in faith to the holy God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was answered with a lightning bolt in a moment, and it consumed the very water that was poured around the altar. And that day there was judgment and there was certainty that our Lord rules in the heavens and that there is a day of reckoning. And no matter if the spirit of the age gains a majority in a culture, it does not prove them right. And it does not prove the word of God wrong. It only judges them worthy of reckoning, which will soon come if they do not repent. The Bible, saints, this is our confession. This is where we stand or we do not stand at all. The Bible is inerrant in everything it intends to convey because it is the word of God. If not, there is no word of God. God has not spoken. If not, then man is aimless and lost. Hopeless, dead, gone. He is, in his quest for knowledge, proven nothing but a fool. It is a fool's errand to try to acquire knowledge when you, as a contingent, finite human being, do not know if there's a body of knowledge that would negate everything you claim to have scientific certainty. It is, in fact, a blind and deaf existence that we embrace and entertain if we deny that God, the omniscient, the one who is in himself self-contained and eternal, the one who always is, always was, and always is, and will ever be. It is a quest of fools indeed to claim to come to the truth and knowledge apart from him. Without him, I say, we are just sacks of biological happenstance, the walking dead, amoral zombies, just the byproduct of colliding chemicals, going to the grave and in between cavorting about in curious exchange, but no meaning, no truth, no foundation. As we look at the aspects of the Gospels, that those freshly fueled by the spirit of the age look at as contradictions, when we look at them with closer scrutiny, we don't see reason to doubt God's holy word. In fact, through the greater lens of Scripture, the very things that in their short-sightedness in their myopic scope, people have written off, actually proved to illustrate the glory and primacy of Holy Scripture. Upon further analysis then, let us look at this text as just one example. Let us call our attention then to the application as we see what underlies Matthew 21. Let us be strengthened. Upon closer analysis, let us see that these anomalies that the world calls uh, defeaters or contradictions in the Word of God actually stand to illustrate the glory and primacy of Scripture. And thus, Matthew 21 stands as a great means and tool to strengthen our faith against the fiery darts of skepticism. This morning I have three brief points for you following this heading. Jesus Christ as the ultimate. Three things. Jesus Christ as the ultimate King. Jesus Christ as the ultimate priest, Jesus Christ as the ultimate 
prophet. Yes, the threefold office of Christ is here in the text. On this day in Matthew 21 in gospel history, the intertextual testimony confirms this. That is to say, the context of greater scripture confirms that Jesus Christ is the ultimate. He is the all-in-one, if you will. He is the king, the priest, and the prophet, the sufficient savior, the captain of our salvation, our rock, our fortress, the one in whom is our salvation, the one who is in himself, in his dual nature, fully God and fully man. The one who came and dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us, yet Yahweh in the flesh. Christ is the ultimate king. We turn once again to our text. Let's read verses 6 through 9. While we're rereading a portion of our text this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings 32 through 37. 1 Kings 32 through 37. Chapter 1, that is. Matthew 21, 6, while you're turning there, again the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he, that is Jesus, sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There was a moment with strike, of striking parallel that preceded this event by thousands of years. And we read of this in 1 Kings. As we see Jesus in Matthew 21 as the ultimate king, we see that these events of the triumphal entry, as we briefly alluded to in our message last week, were a reenactment of sorts, but beyond that, they were a fulfillment of a coronation ceremony of a son of David, yes, a literal king and son of David that preceded him, immediately followed David's own reign. 1 Kings 1, 32, we read, as David is aging, the following, King David said, Call to me Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of our Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Verse 34, if you have a highlighter, you might highlight three words, priest, prophet, and king. Notice again, 34. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him, that is Solomon, king over Israel. Priest, prophet, and king appear in the text. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. 35. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. You see, all the people of God. Verse 36, And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater 
than the throne of my Lord, King David. As we notice the clarity in the text, it suddenly is striking to us the parallel between 1 Kings and this this coronation ceremony and Matthew 21. You see, the Holy Spirit knew exactly what would happen thousands of years later. And the uniqueness, the beauty of the Word of God, the absolute supernatural nature of the text comes to the fore in these types of prophecies. There was a son of David, namely Solomon, who himself was seated on a beast of burden. The ESV translates a mule. And he is commanded by his father, David, thus proving him his son, that is, a son of David, would ride a mule, would go to the people in a coronation ceremony, he would assume the throne, and he would be attended by, accompanied by, a priest and a prophet. The solemnness of this occasion would be signaled by this threefold office. Here we have a king, a son of David, and he is inaugurated in his position of rule and reign by a priest and by a prophet. There is the word of God that declares it to be so, God's will. There is the priest that is there to anoint and solemnize the occasion. This is the will of God. This is a messianic occasion. This is God's plan, and it is weighty with significance. And there is a son of David himself who then assumes the authority and command over Israel and Judah, indeed all the people of God. And so ruling in the land at this time in 1 Kings chapter 1 is a son of David who prefigured Christ, who came in among the people on a mule, was greeted with praises, long live King Solomon, attended by priests and a prophet. There would come a day, saints, where we, those who can unite with us in the Spirit, would join the coronation ceremony of another son of David, when he, on a lowly beast of burden, mounted on a donkey, on a foal, the colt, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden, in that humble picture, would enter into Jerusalem, greeted by a crowd who spread their cloaks on the road, cutting down branches and crying out to who? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have the son of David. We have the mule, as it were, and the foal and the donkey. But where are, you might ask, the priest? And where, you might ask, is the prophet? I declare to you in the title of this message, they are all in one. This Messiah who comes in on this beast of burden is prophet, priest, and king. And as Matthew 21 unfolds, we see that this is indeed the case. He has proven in his actions that that in this same day, in these moments that surround this event, that he is king, priest, and prophet. Striking indeed. So we move to point number two under king. We're reminded of another text. I would invite you to turn with me to cross-reference another significant moment in 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 2. 2 Samuel 5, verse 1 and 2. Here again we have an account of David that is highly significant. Now, it would have been unbeknownst to the people at the time, I'm sure, but it was not unbeknownst to the Holy Spirit. These words are recorded, not just recorded, preserved. 
And they were not just preserved, but fulfilled. Not just fulfilled, but the fulfilled words were recorded. So now, again, as we go to the text, we read in this glorious compendium of truth, in this sovereignly God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired story of redemption, 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 12, back to get back again with Matthew 21. So here we are in the text, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old, that seems significant, does it not? When he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years, six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Notice with particular attention the events that soon unfold in verse 6 and following. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever strike, who would, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house." And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo, Milo inward. And David became greater and greater. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. In this instance, one of the first acts of David's kingly rule was, declare, was to declare authority over the taunts, the epithets, the insults, and the curses of the naysayers. And this comes in the phrase, the blind and the lame. There was an enemy of David in the Jebusites who were so convinced and despised him so that they said, you, in as many words, you will be no more successful in defeating Jerusalem if it were defended only by the lame and the blind. We don't even have to so much as pick up a sword and watch where we swing it. We don't have to do even so much as rise out of our easy chairs to defend this city, you will never conquer Jerusalem. David was God's king, his appointed and anointed man for the hour. David rose up against that curse and proved them wrong in glorious fashion. And so the term the blind and the lame came to be used or came to refer to the enemy and his own foolishness. David identifies then the Jebusites 
by their own pejorative term, the blind and the lame, and says, destroy them all. This is a picture of kingly judgment. The blind and the lame in this text, in David's kingly rule, are associated with his judgment. Well, there would come another day, brothers and sisters in Christ, where a son of David would assert his kingship. And in this sense, there would be a fulfillment. The blind and the lame would appear again in Jerusalem, but it would not be with reference to judgment, but instead to his everlasting glory. And we read of this in Matthew 21, in one small verse, easily missed without the context of greater scripture, 21, 14. And the blind and the lame came to him, where? In the temple, and he healed them. This is powerful. The son of David, the king, now comes, and the uniqueness and the type of the miracle is recorded because this coming of the son of David would now associate the fulfillment of what the Old Testament alluded to with victory over the enemy in such a way that the blind and the lame are now a symbol of his power to reconcile, to heal, to redeem, and to restore. His grace is manifest as the blind and the lame now are a reference associated with the son of David to speak to not only his authority to judge, but his authority to redeem. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king, the ultimate son of David. The events unfold before us in glorious prophecy-fulfilling clarity. That is the intertextual witness. The message of all of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is King of kings. Secondly, this morning, second major point, Jesus Christ is the ultimate priest. As we move through the text, we see reference again that the Son of David is all in one. He is not attended by Zadok the priest, nor by a prophet alongside him, because he is three in one in his offices. And he proves himself priest in the following ways. First of all, let us consider the context of the temple cleansing in its harmony and chronology to unseat some errors in the thinking that has, you can turn with me to John chapter 2, thinking that has plagued the church and the skeptics have salted into our understanding and unnecessarily so. Let's consider the harmony and chronology of temple cleansings in the Gospels, and then we will move in due course to recognize Christ's priestly role in this event. As we turn to John chapter 2, we read of another time when Jesus cleansed the temple. Now, this is debated and disputed, but let me make my case, and I think you will see the importance as we move along. We'll read verses 13 and following John chapter 2. Says so the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the table of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has consumed me. 
So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The reason this text, side by side with Matthew 21, has been the subject of controversy and debate in Christian theology and biblical understanding is because this happens early in John's record in Jesus' ministry. In other words, are we to understand that John says Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, but Matthew says he cleansed it at the end, and so therefore it must be a contradiction Or is there more here in view? Because we see in Matthew's gospel in chapter 21 that these events precede the crucifixion narrative by a matter of days. Yet in John's gospel, it follows that first, that initial miracle in Cana turning water into wine. I would submit to you the best explanation for this, and not just by mere opinion, but with corroborating evidence of greater testimony of Scripture, that these accounts... need to be put in chronological order and indeed harmonized to understand them as two events. That is my thesis, that John records Jesus' cleansing in the temple, which indeed happened early in his ministry, and Matthew records a temple cleansing later. That is, Jesus did it twice. John's account, incidentally, later serves, it seems, as a basis for the accusations in the Synoptic Gospels. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We won't turn there this morning, but mark for later study, Matthew 26, 61, and Mark 14, 58. And this is at the unjust trial of Jesus, where the false accusers say that he said he would destroy uh, the temple, he would destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. That presumes the event that John recorded, though Matthew and Mark don't record that event explicitly. That's not all. Again, harmonizing the account, it makes sense that it happened twice, as we view the taunting of Jesus on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 40, Mark 15, 29, both record the jeers, the blasphemers, and the onlookers as they look up at the cross. Oh, you're so great. You claim to have power to destroy the temple, to build it up again. Why won't you save yourself? Come down from that cross. So it is John's account of that early testimony or that early account of his destruction of the temple And his prophecy afterward forms the basis of the passion narrative in Matthew and in Mark. So that's a little bit of the harmony and the chronology. This week, I mentioned earlier this week, I listened to a debate, a higher critical scholar, that is somebody who has a standard higher than Scripture. That's what higher criticism means. They see the Scripture not as an authority in and of itself, but one that needs to be subjected. And ultimately, if you listen to them long enough, you realize the authority that they're using, wielding, to judge the Scriptures, is their own intellect. I would submit to you, Bart Ehrman is one modern popular scholar who falls into this category. Though claiming to be a Christian, his statements and his writings have become delicious fodder for internet atheism. Oh, even the Christian or the biblical scholars call into question the, uh, the inerrancy of the Word of God. I submit to you, that in the presuppositions that this Ehrman fellow brings to the table, he has narrowed his thinking to miss some things indeed. 
And one of the biggest glaring missing elements is the Old Testament and the prophecies, again, that were pre-recorded thousands of years and verified as such in the Old Testament Scriptures. So I would turn you back in the pages of, your, of the Bible you have before you today again to Leviticus chapter 14. And let us see what modern scholarship is oblivious to. Let us consider, after considering the harmony and the chronology of these events in the Gospels, let us consider, secondly, redemptive and historical significance. And now we see in this action that Christ himself was doing a priestly duty indeed. So here's a text I'm sure you all have memorized, but let's read it together just in case. Leviticus 14.33 The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, There seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. And the priest shall condemn that they shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. And afterward the priest shall go in to see the house. He shall examine the disease. And if the disease is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish spots, and if it appears to be deeper than the surface, verse 38, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door, the house shut up the house for seven days. The priest shall come again on the seventh day and look. If the disease has spread to the walls of the house, and the priest shall command that they take out the stones in which is the disease and throw them into an unclean place outside the city. And he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around in the plaster that they scrape off. They shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city again. Verse 42, then they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones. He shall take other plaster and plaster the house. If the disease breaks out again in the house, after he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, 44, then the priest shall go and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, it is a persistent leprous disease in the house. It is unclean. And he shall break down the house, its stones and timber, and all the plaster of that house, and he shall carry them out of the city to an unclean place. Follow with me the priestly protocol for a contaminated house. The picture in all of Leviticus is uncleanness. This is symbolic imagery that de demonstrates the terms of sanctification, consecration, the setting apart of what is holy for the Lord. The picture of disease and blight is a picture of sin and death. And so in this context, the ceremonial law, it is not allowed to remain on the premises. But as we know in Scripture, it had a spiritual truth it meant to convey. That is, the cleansing of a house of leprosy is a picture of the cleansing of the spiritual environment from the disease and the contaminating effects of sin. Upon the inspection... This is the protocol for disease or leprosy of the household, if you will. Upon inspection by the priest, if disease or the condition persists, the house continues to be contaminated, then an initial deep cleansing, a cleansing of the house is prescribed. Then activity resumes within that house. If a relapse of uncleanness occurs, a subsequent inspection is in order. 
And then upon confirming contamination, a final remedy and a second cleansing, which entails condemnation of the premises and total destruction, is in order. Now think about what happened in the temple. In John chapter 2, there was an inspection of the premises by the priest of priests, the high priest, Jesus Christ. And what did he find? He found spiritual contamination. The house of God was contaminated with the lusts of men. And they were seeking to pad their own pockets and bless themselves and the premises of what was meant to be consecrated as the environment reserved for the holiness of God. And so what did he do? He initiated a cleansing. Activity resumed within the household of God. But there was a second inspection. Just as the priestly protocol called for in Leviticus, Christ returned. And what did he find? He found a relapse of the contamination of sin. The money changers continued unabashed to profit off the worship of Almighty God. And so in his zeal, he threw them out. He threw them out. And then what did he do? Well, finally, who has the last word and the final authority? Turn with me a few pages over to Matthew 23. The end of this chapter and the beginning of the next, Christ declares, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's talking about a coming. Verse 24, 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The judgment, the condemnation, condemnation of the premises and its total destruction was commanded by Jesus Christ. And in God's providence, history records the writings of Josephus and others, just a generation, biblically speaking, after Jesus commanded the destruction of this temple, this unimaginable event occurred. A structure that history records took 46 years to build was destroyed proportionally in moments, moments, as the hordes came in in A.D. 70 and the stones of the temple were toppled and the blight of false worship was removed from the premises according to the authoritative judgment of the priest of priests who said, no more will the worship of the Almighty be contaminated by the sin of man. Jesus Christ is the ultimate priest. These pictures this morning that I bring to you today are not original to me. I am not the first preacher to draw these to your attention, but it is necessary for us to see the beauty of Scripture. As I have studied and read others, it has challenged me to dig deeper into the underpinnings and intricacies of Holy Scripture. And my conviction is, and I want to pass this along to you, as we study these things, they will fortify us against the skepticism of the naysayers. And our shield of faith will be impregnable against the fiery darts of the spirit of this age. This morning in closing, let us consider briefly Christ as prophet. 
This one is more obvious in the text, so we need not spend a whole lot of time here. And we'll pick up more on this as well in a later message, Lord willing. Matthew 21, 9. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. The attestation of the people is remarkable indeed. They declare him to be the son of David, that is, king and Messiah. But they go on to attest that he is the prophet, that he is a prophet. And this was an anomaly indeed. This was quite the eye-opening revelation for the people of God. As we remarked in prior texts, that in the past the king would not be a prophet, nor a priest, these roles were separate. But now even the people, as they praise with their hosannas, Messiah as he enters, declare him to be both king and prophet. Christ goes on, he has preceded this moment with a demonstration of his prophetic role, and he goes on to demonstrate it as well. He has said in foretelling fashion, that is, predicting the future, that they will find, when they're resting there in Bethphage, the two disciples are sent out, They will find a donkey tied and a colt with her at a place where Jesus told them to go. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say. And then we read the rest of the record. The disciples went out according to Jesus' prediction of the future. That event unfolded exactly as he said. Indeed, a prophet of God. That may seem trivial to you, but question your heart if it does. Did it seem trivial to the disciple Nathaniel when... Jesus prophesied something about him resting under a fig tree? It did not. It was that attestation, or the attestation of Nathanael by that minor, if you will, and scope revelation of prophetic authority was enough for him to cry out, truly you must be the Son of God, Jesus says. You think that is something, I'm paraphrasing. Wait till you see the heavens open and the angels ascending and descending on the sun. And this, I tell you, is a picture of the unfolding glory of Christ's role as prophet, priest, and king in the text. Later, Christ, as we already remarked, would foretell the destruction of the temple. He would declare that Jerusalem would crucify him, the inhabitants of the city. He said this four times, as I recall, specifically to his disciples before the event took place, the nature of the trial, the nature of his passion, his suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection, All of these he prophesied. Why? Because he was not just king, not just priest, but prophet, foretelling. Also, the role biblically of prophet is foretelling, F-O-T-H, F-O-R-T-H, telling. That is declaring objective truth and corrective mandate with authority. Christ did this. He declared objective truth and corrective mandate with authority. He says, citing scripture with authority that rung in the ears of the money changers in the temple, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He forth tells, if you will, to the religious elite, those who had claimed to be the experts in such things, have you never read indeed an insult to these experts in the law? He calls their attention to something the blindness of heart had not allowed them to see in the old covenant text that was Psalm 8 which said, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And Jesus was forth telling then in these incidents, the scriptures 
were applicable to the people and to their issues and to their sin of their day. And he called them to see God's mighty works wrought through their Messiah, King, Priest, and Prophet, Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Next time we are in Matthew, perhaps we will explore at greater depth Psalm 8. I think you will find there, as we remarked last week, striking parallels in the text and clarity and self-identification. The psalm opens with, O Yahweh, and proceeds to describe the kind of worship that will be ascribed to Yahweh, God Almighty, His highest name in Scripture. And thus, Jesus associates this worship to Yahweh, to the worship of the children, to Him. Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. We go on to read that the worship worthy of Christ incorporates the themes of His universal majesty, His sovereign revelation, and His created order. And once again, in closing this morning, I would exhort us, brothers and sisters, meditations such as these will temper our shield of faith, even in our modern age. And the intricate, the glorious, the beautiful testimony of all of Holy Scripture will thus prove to be not an incomprehensible text, not a mythical allegory, not a primitive accounting of history with ethnic bias, but instead it will prove a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, a hammer for idols, a fire for chaff, and a two-edged sword conquering every foe of Jesus Christ, King, Priest, and Prophet par excellence. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious unveiling of the truth of our great Messiah, King, Savior, Sacrifice, High Priest, Mediator, and Lord. We are taken, Lord Jesus, with the beauty and the treasure of what you have preserved for us and the preciousness of his blood that purchased for us free entry into that same temple that all uncleanness was excluded from. Because Jesus Christ himself came and tabernacled among us. May we appreciate with our faith ever strengthened in your declared truth, the holiness of God and the entrance our Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, King, Priest and Prophet, obtained to the Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.